This week, we want to tell you again about McAvoy Ranch because, well, now we've gotten to try their products and they are delicious. McAvoy Ranch creates sustainably produced extra virgin olive oil. That's the world's best. And it comes from their Northern California ranch. The company is female founded and female led by their president, Samantha Dorsey. Olive oil itself has so many health benefits as an anti-inflammatory and an antioxidant, but McAvoy Ranch also makes olive oil delicious. And since I'm trying to eat healthier, but I still love my sweets, I tried their organic blood orange olive oil last week in place of butter in my sugar cookies, and I am still dreaming about how tasty they were. Actually, olive oil is a great substitute for butter and a lot of baking because it contains healthier fats than butter. Olive oil is also a great swap for vegetable oil because it maintains its health benefits throughout the cooking process. If you'd like to experience the healthy and tasty benefits for yourself, visit www.macavoyranch, that's M-C-E-V-O-Y-R-A-N-C-H.com, and enter promo code COFFEE15 to receive 15% off your order. You will be so happy you did. They are a company with products worth celebrating. Happy Thursday, sleuth hounds. Allison here. You know, Maggie and I talk a lot on the show about our Patreon and the bonus content that you can find there, but it's hard to know if something's worth paying for if you don't know what it's like. So even though you can join our Patreon for only $5 a month, we wanted to share a small taste of the episodes that are found there. That way, if you like what you hear, you can head on over to join at patreon.com forward slash coffee and cases. So without further ado, here is our full Patreon episode from last December. Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Obviously, with the nature of the show, we talk a lot about murderers and even, at times, three named serial killers. (laughs) We also talk a lot about justice and punishment, and I'll be honest, I'm personally quite torn on the topic of the death penalty. Oh, me too, yeah. I understand that the cost of life imprisonment is high. Like, the logical part of me understands Mm -hmm. that. On the ethical side, I personally question whether it's right to take a life just based on whether I feel it's justified. You know, as a religious person, mm -hmm. does that make me a murderer too? And then I also think, this is kind of like a little cynical, Mm -hmm. but I also think, are we better to... Like, do they pay more if they have to live their life thinking about what they did? Right. As a punishment. Is that worse? Yeah. Then it's like uh, the the, chair, the the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Did you have to ever have to read that Mm -mm. in any of your English classes? It's a Samuel Taylor Coleridge poem. um, And this mariner. Oh, then yes, I'm sure I probably did. He shoots an albatross and he has to wear it around his neck. Anyway, Uh, yes, Mm -hmm. all the other people on the ship are taken by death, but he has life 
in death, meaning he feels like death, but he can never die. And so that's, I guess, what you were kind of getting at, which is worse. And, you know, the emotional side of me, too. I understand that if somebody hurt my little sleuth hound, some part of me would want them to suffer. Oh, yeah. And so I think that's why I'm really torn. So I see all sides of it. But in terms of the topic of this Patreon case, I actually got a little curious and I looked up some statistics that I actually, when I looked them up, found quite shocking. So I wanted to find what the recidivism rate is on murderers. So how likely is it that someone who has previously committed first degree murder will go on to murder again if they were released? Right. So if they didn't face the death penalty, if they were released back into society, how likely is it? Recidivism, the recidivism is... (laughs) that Allison just said literally means the tendency of a convicted criminal to reoffend. So for those of us that don't know big words like she does, that's what (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I was curious, how likely is it that if they were released, that they would murder again? And the statistics from the United States show that murderers actually have the lowest rate of recidivism of all released offenders at less than 2%. Okay. I found that shocking. But then I was thinking, okay, this is my logical brain. I'm thinking, is there a reason? So I think to myself, well, maybe that number is skewed because maybe the ones who get released are the ones who killed because of negligence. Like, drunk driving or something like that and not premeditated Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. murder, right? So then I was thinking, okay, that would make the percentage small. Or maybe those who were released were accessories, but not the main offender, right? Those are the things that are going through my mind Uh, because I was trying to explain to myself why it would be so low. But then I actually found some statistics from the U.S. Department of Justice, the Bureau of Justice Statistics from 2016, that states the following two pieces of information. Number one, quote, 96% of violent offenders released in 2016, including 70% of those sentenced for murder or non-negligent manslaughter, served less than 20 years before initial release from state prison. So it's not just the negligent murderers, you know, those who murder by drunk driving Mm -hmm. or something like that, who are getting released, who are then going on to only re, you know, recommit a crime or murder again at that less than 2%. These are people who premeditated criminals. Yeah, their murder and 70% are serving less than 20 years before an initial release. But this would be like, not people that, because sometimes the judge can can say, like, you have no possibility of parole. So not those people, right? right? But apparently those are few and far between. Because the second piece of information I found was it said that persons who were sentenced for murder, for murder serve an average of 15 years before their first release. Okay, part of me is like, excuse me? That's insane to me. But then another Mm -hmm. part of me is like, I guess that's the whole debate of, you know, are we there to rehabilitate? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it said that only 30% of murderers actually serve 20 years or longer. So... Apparently, that 2% statistic should be reassuring, right? Because uh apparently it includes almost all murderers, you know, 70% of them. But I'm kind of scared because I feel like your case is going to be about somebody who killed someone, went to jail, got out, and killed somebody again. Okay, so we are going to talk about uh, somebody who would fit into that 2%. Oh. So buckle up. We are going to be in for a long ride that actually spans more than 30 years. Wow. 
This is the story of Carl, who went by Charlie Brandt. And due to the gruesome details and crimes in this case, listener discretion is strongly advised. This is not the episode to listen to with children around. I'm going to be honest with you. My brain mm-hmm. today is so fried. We just recorded one of my regular episodes on coffee and cases and Allison's got about a t- million and 50 edits to make because my brain is so fried. I literally read his name as Charlie Brandon. <laughs> it's no like sounds, it's, yeah, no, it's B-R-A-N-D-T. Yep. It's fine, Maggie. It'll be okay. Yep. Okay. So it was late August, early September 2004 in Big Pine Key, Florida, which is an island that is part of the Florida Keys. (sighs) Sounds Mm -hmm. so good. I know. It sounds amazing right now. It's nearly all the way down to Key West, which Mm. is the southernmost point of the United States. So it was only about Big Big Pine Key is about a 40-minute drive north of Key West. That's awesome. But one of the dangers of living in the Florida Keys and on an island is the weather. And the news was filled with reports of the incoming Hurricane Ivan that was to hit where Charlie Brandt and his wife Terry lived. Oh, so, I do not do hurricanes. Mm-mm. That, mm-mm. That and was the Hurricane Ivan a big me. hurricane? Oh, yeah, it was. So Charlie and Terry, they made preparations to stay safe from the storm. Charlie meticulously cut boards for the windows and doors to protect the home. We've all seen Mm -hmm. the pictures, right, of the boarded up homes. And when I say meticulous, I mean that each individual board was cut precisely to the size that it needed to be with perfect circles going around the doorknobs. Wow. So this wasn't a hurried... You know, Mm -hmm. let's bang up some boards overlapping each other. Meticulous. Charlie and Terry had already packed some clothes and they had made plans to make the drive to Orlando or the Orlando area where they would stay with Terry's niece, Michelle Lynn Jones, for a few days. Let's go to Disney, Disney, see Mickey, Minnie. I do not even know what that is. No. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I do not even know what that is. Yeah. But maybe our listeners do. Yeah. So they were going to stay with Terry's niece, Michelle, for a few days to kind of ride out the storm. And Terry was actually extremely close to her niece, Michelle. They visited with each other often with either Charlie and Terry going to Michelle, Michelle coming to see them. So Michelle was quick to open her home to her family. Michelle, a single 37-year-old executive with the Golf Channel, was also extremely close with her mother, who was Terry's sister, Mary Lou. And oh my she God, was Mary very, Lou, so I cute. Know, it is very cute. And Michelle was very close to her friends. So she would talk on the phone with her mom and her friends every day or nearly every day. Okay. And Charlie and Terry, who, again, all of Michelle's friends were familiar with because of previous visits, arrived on September 2nd and had stayed several days with Michelle. Charlie initially hadn't wanted to stay very long. Uh, He just wanted to, you know, stay long enough until Hurricane Ivan had passed. There was no longer any potential danger and then was wanting to kind of get back and see what, if any, damage Mm -hmm. had been done to their home. However, on September 13th, 2004, Charlie had insisted that the two of them stay just one more night with Michelle before heading home. Oh, no. I don't feel like this is going to end very good for Michelle. It's it's not. Their bags, which were already packed, were placed by the door for the next morning. On that evening of the 13th, one of Michelle's friends, Lisa Emmons, was going to come over and visit with all of them. So she had already planned on coming over, but Michelle called her to say... I don't know if it's going to be such a good idea because Charlie and Terry are still here. They've had too much to drink 
and they were arguing. So this is probably not the best atmosphere to enter into. Oh, and that's so awkward, too. Mm-hmm. That's awkward for Michelle. Oh, right. So her friend Lisa agrees and didn't come over. It was also that evening that Michelle stopped answering her phone. <sighs> After two days had passed with no communication from Michelle... Her friends were obviously worried, but it was when they heard from Michelle's mom, Mary Lou, that she, too, hadn't heard from her daughter. That Michelle's friend, oh yeah, Michelle's friend Debbie Knight said, you know what, I'm going to go to Mm -hmm. Michelle's home to check. And Michelle and her friends, you know, I said they were extremely close. They had actually exchanged house keys with one another. So Debbie came armed with a key and she was actually on the phone with Michelle's mom, Mary Mary Lou, when she arrived. But for some reason, the key that Debbie had, it wasn't working on the front door. So Debbie went around to the garage door and the garage door was almost all glass. So she was able to see into the garage. However, what she saw, Maggie, was an image that would she would never be able to erase from her mind. There in the garage, between the vehicles, was Charlie Brandt hanging from the rafters. Okay, not really how I thought this was going to go. Well, it gets worse. Since there was a ladder nearby, it looked like Charlie had used a bed sheet to commit suicide. So, obviously, Debbie is traumatized. So, she immediately calls law enforcement. And, obviously, she didn't take a foot, take another step into the house. And Maggie, it was a good thing that she didn't because what she saw was nothing compared to what was inside the home. What was inside was even enough to make seasoned law enforcement officers run back outside to vomit. Oh no. After seeing, just as Debbie had, Charlie Brandt's decomposing body, they entered, law enforcement did, to next see Terry Brant's body slumped over. And this over. is the aunt, right? Yeah, this is Charlie's wife, Terry. It's Michelle's, Michelle's aunt. Michelle's aunt, mm-hmm. yeah. Her body slumped over on the couch. Terry had been stabbed in the chest seven times. <sighs> Terry had some defensive wounds on her left hand that made it appear as though she had fought with her killer, according to the sheriff's report. But it was Michelle's murder that was unlike anything officers had ever seen. Michelle had one stab wound to the chest. Then, based on the evidence, her clothing had been removed and placed in the bathroom sink. Okay, so she's been stabbed in the chest, they shook her naked, Mm -hmm. and put her clothes in the bathroom sink. Correct. Okay. Then Was she dead from the one stab? Yes, she was. She was. Then the killer took time dismembering (gasps) Michelle's body. She had been decapitated and her head placed beside of her body with her hair having been brushed away from her face. Her breasts had been cut off. Her chest had been cut open with meticulous precision, and her heart had been cut out. Well, I already know, even if I didn't know, that this is a solved case, so we know who did this. I already Mm -hmm. know. It was Charlie, because you said meticulous Mm -hmm. precision, Mm -hmm. and that's the same thing he did with the boards on their house. Mm -hmm. So her heart had been meticulously cut out. She had additionally been disemboweled and her left leg had been cut off. Oddly, also cut, were all of Michelle's Victoria's Secret bras and panties and they were strewn across the floor of her bedroom. But the house had been locked from the inside. And other than the cut-up underwear on the floor of Michelle's bedroom, there was no indication of a struggle. When Michelle's mom and Terry's sister, Mary Lou, first heard of the crime, 
and the belief that Charlie could have been responsible, she actually found it hard to fathom. She had known him for 17 years. So she's thinking, wouldn't there have been some sort of indication that he was capable of this? I'm kind of anxious to see where this 2% thing comes in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but for all intents and purposes, the people who knew Charlie, they were like, okay, he's eccentric, he's quirky, yeah. but nobody could believe what they were being told. That and wasn't he was he super close to Michelle? Oh, yeah. He was extremely close, and his wife was, so they were visited all the time. So even though friends and family were like, there's no possibility that Charlie could have done this, law enforcement lead investigator Rob Hemmert believed right away that Charlie had committed the murders and then committed suicide. And he believes that Charlie actually killed his wife first so he could kind of remove her from the equation, kind of get her out of mm. the way so he could take time in the murder and dismemberment of his niece, Michelle. Mm. When and Terry's f- murder was super... Oh, yeah. Seven stab wounds? Yeah. yeah. When he finished the mutilation of Michelle, which, again, took some time, he had changed his own clothes, leaving the bloody ones on the floor by the bed in Michelle's bedroom, and according to one source, had even showered before hanging himself in the garage. Mm. And isn't murder-suicide really rare? Yeah. And in that act, it almost like, it's almost like he's cleansing himself or Mm -hmm. he feels like he is. It's really bizarre. But based upon the crime scene and the bags that were sitting in the front hall, because remember, they had planned on leaving the next morning. And he said, let's stay one more night. Right. Uh, Yeah. Along with that news from a friend that they had decided to stay that one additional night at Charlie's insistence. That's what led that investigator Hemmert to comment, quote, there was no reason for them to stay behind. The hurricane had passed. So he chose to stay for a reason. I think that was because he knew what he was going to do. So they don't think that he got drunk and did it. They think that he had planned on doing it before getting drunk with Terry. Correct. Just because Mm -hmm. of that news that they got that he insisted that they stay Mm -hmm. another night. And even though she said that they were drunk and arguing, I think maybe the detective is thrown off by how meticulous that dismemberment was. Mm Mm-hmm. To think maybe he wasn't as drunk as it appeared. Mm. But here's where we're going to get into that 2%. It was when someone very specific showed up at the police station that law enforcement began to understand that their hunch that it was Charlie was right. That person was Charlie's sister, Angela who told law enforcement that she was terrified of her brother. And boy, did she have a story to tell. So let me tell a little bit of the background. Charlie was born in 1957 to Herbert and Ilsa Brandt, who were both German immigrants. His parents had actually originally moved to Texas when they came to the U.S. They later moved the growing family to Connecticut, Charlie's father worked for International Harvester, and as he kind of worked his way up from laborer to project engineer, as a result of those position changes up the career ladder, the Brandt family ended up moving more than once. So it was almost as though every time he got a promotion, they had to move. They moved. Yeah. And that caused the two oldest children, Angela, who was the oldest child, and Charlie, the second child, to frequently have to change schools. By September 1968, the family had moved again to Fort Wayne, Indiana, when Herbert was actually transferred to a plant there for his job. So by 1971, Angela and Charlie actually had two younger sisters, and their mom was eight months pregnant with child number five, That was due in February of 1971. So we're in January 1971 at this story that Angela is telling them. 
The family had just returned from a trip to Florida, which was a favorite vacation spot of theirs, and they had a wonderful time other than the one unfortunate incident during a hunting trip when Charlie's dad had shot the family dog. Oh, I know. Okay. Well, one source made it seem as though the the death of the dog was a hunting accident. Like, Mm -hmm. the dog was in a thicket, and he shot into the thicket, and it hit the dog. Uh, But another source claimed that the dog was extremely ill and was suffering, and that his father, Herbert, had killed the dog to put it out of its misery. Either way, traumatizing. Yeah, difficult event to process, yeah. Charlie, who was 13 at the time, was a quiet kid. He had some trouble adjusting, obviously, with all these moves, and as a result, he was very shy, but he always did well in school. He was known as a mama's boy. He was very close to her, and he would often be put in charge of babysitting his two younger sisters because he was pretty responsible. On January 3rd, 1971, something seemed to snap in Charlie, however. Okay, so we're at the age of 13. At the age of 13. We have a change, a shift. Yes. January 3rd had been an uneventful day. The family had gotten home and all of them were getting ready for bed. It was around 9 or 10 p.m. The two youngest girls were actually already fast asleep. 15-year-old Angela was in her room reading a book. And Herbert and Ilsa were in the bathroom. Herbert was shaving. One source said he was actually reading Shakespeare to his wife, which sounds super romantic to me. Mm -hmm. While Ilsa was actually taking a nice long soak in the bath, which I'm sure was nice at eight months pregnant um, Mm -hmm. to get that, that soak in. But there was a knock at the bathroom door. It was Charlie. Oh, God. Angela heard her father's voice say something like, Charlie, don't. Or Charlie, stop. Before hearing a gunshot. (gasps) Angela then heard her mother yell, Angela, call the police. Before hearing several more shots. Before she knew it, her brother Charlie was standing in her bedroom doorway. Gun now pointed straight at Angela. She heard the click as he pulled the trigger. But the gun was out of ammunition. Charlie then came into the room and attempted to strangle Angela. She was begging him to stop. She said that he he seemed almost to be in a trance. Yeah, I think he was possessed. Yeah, she kept trying to calm Charlie down and saying, like, let me help you figure out what to do. And she was continually repeating, don't you know how much I love you? I love you, Charlie. And she said eventually his eyes looked normal to her again, as though the trance had been broken. Did she get in the 911 call or did he come in before she called 911? He came in before she called 911. But now she's thinking, okay, I've broken this trance, but obviously... You know, he just shot our parents. parents. (laughs) Yeah. So she's thinking, okay, I've got to get him off of me. So she manages to get him off of her. And then she's thinking, okay, I've got to distract him. Like, I I need to, you know, be able to escape. So she tells him to go get some blankets. Right. So she says, like, and I'm sure he's not thinking at this point. So she says, Charlie, go get some blankets. And while he was distracted with that task, she ran. She ran down the stairs. She ran out the door. She ran to the first house that she came to, banging on the door, ringing the doorbell, trying to get help. And when that door wasn't opened immediately, she looked back at her house and saw that Charlie had come out of the house and was coming toward her. Michael Myers. Mm -hmm. So she ran to the next house. So as she's knocking on the door of that second house, Charlie actually went to that first house and also knocked on the door. And at about the same time, the door Angela was knocking on opened and the door that Charlie knocked on opened. Angela told that neighbor what had happened. And Charlie actually admitted to the first neighbor, quote, I just shot my mom and dad. Oh, my God. So, of course, the neighbors called the police. And what they came to find out was that Charlie had taken the revolver from his parents' dresser 
and had shot his father in the back before turning the gun and unloading the rest of the ammunition on his mother. Instantly killing, yeah, both his mother and the unborn fetus. And which is also kind of crazy because he was a mama's boy, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. My daughter and I love smoothies, but what we don't love are smoothie bar prices. With our Blendjet 2 Portable Blender, we can make smoothie bar quality drinks for a fraction of the price. Blendjet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. And it's small enough to fit into a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through those tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. Even better, Blendjet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. Plus, it lasts for 15 plus blends and recharges quickly via a USB-C. You guys have heard me say it before, and I'll say it again. Best of all, the Blendjet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap and you're good to go. Plus, they have so many trendy colors to choose from that the hardest choice will be which design you want to rock. And we want to introduce you to the Orbiter Drinking Lid. The Orbiter Drinking Lid balances a leak-proof design with one-hand-use convenience and a modern minimalist design. The Orbiter Drinking Lid is so easy to use, you only need one hand. Blendjet's patent-pending design allows you to open and drink by simply rotating the lid with your thumb. Just when we thought the Blendjet 2 couldn't get any better, it did. Now you can blend anywhere without spilling everywhere. So what are you waiting for? Go to Blendjet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use the promo code COFFEEINCASESBLENDJET to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 Portable Blender. Go to blendjet.com and use the code COFFEEINCASESBLENDJET to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. Charlie's father was still alive. He had shot his father in the back, but it wasn't a fatal shot. And on the way to the hospital, Herbert kept repeating, quote, I don't know why my son did this. I have no idea as to why my son did this, end quote. So those statements confirmed everything that the police needed to know. 13-year-old Charlie Brandt had killed his mom and the baby she carried and had attempted to murder his father and his sister. So, but he didn't even do anything to the two younger ones, Correct. right? Correct. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's just because t- Angela was able to kind of break the trance. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, had there been ammunition and he killed Angela, would he have gone after them next? I feel like this was who Michael Myers was based off of, and I want to Google it now. I know. So after the shooting, and with no doubt that Charlie had committed the crime, now was the time to determine, obviously, what punishment would be appropriate. 
right? Yeah. Charlie mm-hmm. actually told his sister Angela that he had no memory of what he had done. And wow. he told evaluators that, quote, everything sort of snapped in my mind. I felt like I never felt before, end quote. Charlie even told a judge, quote, I didn't really want to. It was like I was sort of programmed. I hesitated, but the next thing I knew, I'd shot them. Yeah, he was possessed. So here's what's crazy to me and scary. Charlie underwent three separate psychiatric evaluations and none of them, none could determine what had triggered him to commit such an act. He was possessed by the devil. Yeah, because they weren't able to diagnose anything wrong with Charlie. He needed some holy water. Yeah, that's exactly what he needed. And they were not able to come up with any motivation to explain the murders. One psychiatrist, Ronald Pankner, stated, quote, basically, I was looking for mental illness and he wasn't showing the signs and symptoms of serious mental illness, which I thought was what the court wanted to know, end quote. Mm. He went on to say, quote, this kid did well in school. He didn't get into any trouble. He loved his family, he said. And the family said that he was a loving kid, you know. So there wasn't anything to diagnose. We found no psychosis, no distorted thinking that would basically be a reason for this crime to be done, end quote. Wow. And when this doctor was asked what potentially could have caused Charlie to snap and become murderous, Pankner said, quote, we don't know. End quote. That is scary. Wow. Yeah. Just like a light switch. Mm-hmm. And since at 13, he was too young to be charged and tried for murder under Indiana state law, he was sent to a psychiatric hospital to continue treatment. And investigation into the the case, while it deemed that Charlie couldn't be tried for it or shouldn't be tried for it, that was a ruling via grand jury, that grand jury who said, nope, he's too young to be tried for this murder, they did add a written and extremely ominous warning to their ruling, saying that Charlie should seek help because this type of behavior could repeat itself in the future. And it turns out, as we know, they were right. So did Terry, Michelle, Michelle's mom, they didn't know this about him? Okay, so here is where probably... What came next would be one of the most controversial acts of everything that I'm going to talk about. So after spending only one year in a psychiatric hospital, Charlie Brandt was released back into his father's custody in June 1972. But like, I mean, I, I I don't have kids, so I don't know. But I think I would be like, I don't want... I don't know. Is your love that unconditional for your kid? Right. That if you know that they've killed your wife. Yeah. And they tried to kill you you. and your daughter. I know. And your Unless you truly believe that, you know, it was something like a possession or something like, you know what I mean? And that you can get help. But then you would think you would go ahead and continue to seek help. But once... Charlie's father got him back in his custody from there. The Brandt family never again even spoke of what happened that night, nor Charlie's role in it. He never received treatment. He didn't go to counseling. He didn't nope. see a therapist, a nope. psychiatrist, psychologist. Nope. Okay. And they didn't talk about it ever. Soon after Charlie went back into his, yeah, yeah, soon after Charlie went back into his father's care, the family moved to Ormond Beach, Florida, to a place where no one would know what had happened in their family, nor judge Charlie for that crime. And based on, yeah, which I know this is a different time and Google wasn't a thing, but you better believe like when I talked to a guy, I Googled them. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, here's herein lies the problem. So based on the jury's words, obviously, Charlie should have been under intense supervision Mm -hmm. and have had continued Mm -hmm. health supports, mental health Mm -hmm. supports. 
But in 1973, Charlie's father, who had remarried by that point, moved back to Indiana with the two youngest oh. children and mm-hmm. left Angela and Charlie in the care of their grandparents. Okay. Well, even more trauma. That's great. And yeah, when I say that the family kept the secret of that night. Even Are you telling me his grandparents didn't know? I don't know if the grandparents didn't know. But I do know that the two youngest siblings, the two daughters who were asleep Uh that night, did not know what had happened. They believed, as they had been told by their father, that their mother had died in a car accident. Hmm. Instead of telling them the truth. And of course, here's the problem. You were talking about searching people. But because of Charlie's age and lack of trial, those records of that January night in 1971 were sealed. So no one would ever know. Oh, that's so scary. Mm -hmm. So, and here's the thing. It seemed as though maybe Charlie's crime had been just a temporary snap. And you know, how many of us right now are sitting here listening to this thinking, how well do I know my right. right, yeah. Yeah, because, so, after that initial crime, you know, it it almost seemed as though, you know, maybe this was just a, a collapse and yeah. he's mm-hmm. better. Because Angela and Charlie's time with her grandparents seemed typical. Angela's first husband, Jim, actually spent lots of time with Charlie in the 1980s. And even though Angela had told Jim of the murder, mm-hmm. Charlie, to him, also seemed to have adjusted. Jim went so far as to say of Charlie that, quote, he was so gentle that when there was a bug in the house, he would refuse to step on it and carry it outside, end quote. Wow. That was the Charlie that Jim came to know. And again, I said he was considered quirky by a lot of people who knew him, but most people shared that he was this really likable guy. In 1984, Charlie got a a degree in electronics. He was a radar specialist. And in 1986, he married his then-girlfriend, Teresa, who went by Terry. And Jim, by this point, he was no longer married to Angela, had actually been the one who introduced Charlie and Terry. Because Charlie had asked Jim if he knew of any women to set him up on a date with. And about the same time, Jim's then-girlfriend mentioned she had a friend named Terry who was looking to be set up on a date. So they were like, what a coincidence. Mm -hmm. Let's do this. And Charlie and Terry's relationship actually developed quickly. And they soon decided to get married. Both Angela and Jim urged Charlie to tell Terry about his past before they got married, that she deserved to know. And he told them that he had let Terry know of his past, but we don't know if he actually ever did. No family members were invited to the wedding. Mm. Jim believed himself that Charlie did confide in Terry because he had asked Terry at one point when he said, you know, when are you and Charlie going to have kids? And that Terry made a comment like, considering everything, I don't think that's a good idea. So Jim assumed by that comment that she knew. That she knew. But in hindsight, I mean, that comment could have been about anything. Like, well, considering how much he works... I don't, or considering yeah. our financial situation. Yeah, I mean, it could be anything. A few years after they were married, Charlie and Terry moved to their beach home in Big Pine Key, Florida in 1989. And by all accounts, their marriage seemed to have been a strong one, even the envy of others. Terry's best friend, Melanie Fisher, even noted, quote, if my husband could love me one third the amount that Charlie loved Terry, I'd be the luckiest woman in the whole world, end quote. Except she ended up dead. I know. Yeah. The two were never known to argue or to get angry with one another. Basically, people were like, neither one of them have a temper. They held hands always. Alice Francis, who lived across the street from Charlie and Terry, she said of Charlie, quote, he not only loved that woman, he worshipped her, end quote. And her husband added, quote, anything she wanted done, it was done, end quote. 
they seemed so in love to those who were looking at their marriage that it was almost sickening, Maggie. Like they Mm. even made each other's lunch every day because they said it tasted better when it was made by someone who loves you. Wow. There was only one indication of trouble in their relationship, and it happened in 1989, right after a local woman had been killed. Charlie had come home that evening late with blood on his clothes. Oh, no. Terry had confided in Jim that she wondered whether Charlie was involved. Of course, this conversation is per Jim's recollection. He remembers Terry wondering if she should call the sheriff. However, Charlie, when he was asked about the blood, had told her that he had gotten bloody from filleting the fish that he caught because he would go out fishing all the time. But here's the thing. If Terry did actually suspect Charlie of being capable of committing the crime, she never brought it up again, nor gave any indication to anybody else. Was that crime solved? Well, we're going to get to that crime. Mm. So it seems as though his explanation calmed her fears. And it actually wasn't until the murder-suicide in 2004 that Charlie was even on anybody's radar save for his own sisters because she's she and her dad are like the and jim are the only ones who know yeah what happened so when she came to police when angela did she let them know that she still feared for her own life with charlie she later confided to michelle's mother mary lou that she had been so afraid of charlie that for more than 20 years after that first murder she wouldn't go to bed with the air conditioner on because then it might be too loud and she wouldn't be able to hear him coming. She wouldn't go to bed with the windows open and would religiously check that all doors and windows were locked because she was afraid that Charlie would come and kill again. I wouldn't tell him where I lived. I mean, that is fear right there. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that gut feeling that he would kill again was correct because he had and because of the details of the crime and the precision of the cuts and the mutilation on michelle's body law enforcement didn't believe that this was his first time committing a crime just like this one so they went to investigate charlie's home to see what they could find and what they found was disturbing god First, he had a subscription to Victoria's Secret catalog. So not not his wife. He did. So could that explain a secret obsession with his niece, Michelle? And why he cut up all of her Mm -hmm. underwear? Yep, because it was all Victoria's Secret stuff. And law enforcement did find out from interviewing a co-worker of Charlie's that he always referred to Michelle as Victoria's Secret. And he would make inappropriate comments about her appearance. Mm-hmm. Charlie also had newspaper clippings and books about surgery. Okay. It was a radio technician. Well, you know, we've talked about that. We're teachers. <laughs> and like, look at our search history. <laughs> I mean, that's true. But he's got books about surgery. And behind <laughs> his bedroom door, he had a full-sized poster. And you've seen them of those like, It's half a skeleton, half Mm -hmm. muscle, but it's of a woman with her hair in a bun on this poster. Mm, So weird. The search of his web history showed him regularly visiting websites about necrophilia, violence against women, and autopsy photos. So our searches are weird, but they are not that weird right we're just googling serial killers right that's it yeah they found terry's diary as well though it it like actually never exposed any dark secrets about charlie in fact most of the entries were about the two going fishing together having a nice dinner Mm -hmm. what they bought to make for dinner or taking a boat ride and the boat running out of the gas there were a few entries that had odd comments that said things like charlie had a quote-unquote weird day or that he had been out fishing all night however this dude's a serial killer yeah that's as specific as her entries got it was only later 
that Jim admitted to law enforcement of an off-putting conversation that he had once had with Charlie, a conversation that, by the way, he had failed to share with Terry. His wife? Yeah. Jim and Angela had just divorced, and Jim had gone fishing with Charlie. They'd been drinking and fishing all day when the two of them somehow began talking about revenge. Jim recalled of that memory, quote, well, you know, you get your feelings hurt and want to lash out. I believe he looked at me and said, well, if you really want to get revenge, you should kill somebody and cut their heart out. End quote. Mm-hmm. Michelle's parents are irate that the Brandt family had kept Charlie's past such a secret. They argue that had the records not been sealed and no treatment mandated, they might have, you know, at least known of potential trouble. Mm -hmm. And as for the belief that Terry knew Charlie's past before marrying him, they disagree completely. Michelle's father, Bill, said, quote, I don't think she would have married him, period, at all, had she known. End quote. Yeah, I would hope one. I mean, uh, again, I know we go to like the rehabilitation thing, but like one, was he really rehabilitated? Right. No. And then like, I know people deserve second chances and like we shouldn't be judgmental. And But I feel but, like there should have been mandated, you know, mental yeah. health treatment or follow ups or something. Yeah. And even Michelle's friends are irate. Michelle's friend Debbie wants Charlie's father to be punished for keeping the secret. She argued, quote, Charlie's father should be exposed. He knew what his son did. He knew the crimes he did. I would love to see him sit right next to me because I find him guilty, end quote. Wow. And Maggie, there are so many other murders that could be linked with Charlie because they have a similar M.O. And Charlie was known to travel for his job, not only across the country, but also internationally. What? Yes. Now, the good news for law enforcement is that Charlie's M.O. is very specific. And for some cases, that makes it easy to link Charlie to the crime. For others, mm -hmm. there's a trail. Right. There's a potential. So you remember the precision with which Charlie cut the yes. boards for Hurricane Ivan. It was also. And his niece. <laughs> yes. Yes. He was also meticulous in keeping track of mileage on driving for his company. So as a result, it was very easy to see if Charlie were in a particular area of the country and how much he traveled around that area while there to potentially link him to other crimes. Okay, I'm going to pause because mm -hmm. I want to know and I'm going to make a note. I want to know how our sleuth hounds spell the word traveled. Because Allison and I spell it the same, mm -hmm. but not everybody spells it this way. And I want to know how you all oh, spell it. Interesting. Yeah. A little side, side combo. We'll find out. So the following are the crimes also believed to have been committed by Charlie. Number one, the December 1988 murder of Lisa Saunders, age 20. She had been stabbed and pulled from her car in Big Pine Key, where Charlie mm. lived. When she was found, her heart was missing. Oh, yeah. However, law enforcement cannot be certain whether her killer had removed it or whether it was gone as a result of vultures. So obviously, I mean, if the attacker had cut open her chest cavity, then birds of prey would have descended and caused more damage. So gotcha. that is what makes the determination unclear. But in my mind, that makes sense to be Charlie. Number two, the 1989 murder of Sherry Parisho. Sherry was 38, homeless, and lived in a dinghy in the North Pine Channel in Big Pine Key. When her partially clothed body was discovered on July 16, mm. 1989, floating in the water, 
Her throat had been cut so severely that her head was nearly severed. Her chest cavity had been opened and her heart removed. So many similarities. Mm -hmm. One of the divers who retrieved her body, Sergeant Daryl Hull, said of the mutilation that it was, quote unquote, surgical. There were cut marks on the bottom of the dinghy as though the boat itself had served as a cutting board. Her body was found only a thousand feet away from Charlie's house. And in hindsight, Charlie matched a sketch from an eyewitness of a man seen crossing the road right near where the body was discovered. And the night that she was killed was the very night that Charlie had come home with blood on his clothes. The one that made Terry suspect that he had something to do with the death. The night that he told Mm -hmm. her that the blood was from filleting fish. Now, based upon all the evidence that's been collected, law enforcement in Monroe County, where the murder occurred, claim that Charlie Brandt committed the murder, and they closed the case in 2006. Oh, my Lord. In 1995, there was the murder of Darlene Toller, also aged 38. She was found missing her head and her heart with what remained of her body wrapped in plastic and then in blankets and dumped along the highway near Miami. Her head and heart were never discovered. But this highway where her body was found was one that Charlie frequently traveled for work. And on the day of her murder, Charlie had logged that he drove around 100 miles, roughly the same mileage as a trip would be from Big Pine Key to where her body was discovered near Miami. Mm. So those are the three main ones, but there are other murders potentially perpetrated by Charlie Brandt as well, including the 1978 murder of 12-year-old Carol Sullivan. She had been abducted from her bus stop on September 20th, 1978 in this one county in Florida, and it was a county where 20-year-old Charlie Brandt lived at the time. Mm. By the time Carol's body was discovered, she was merely a skeleton, and all that they found was her skull in a bucket. And so that led many people to believe that she had been decapitated. And we don't know if the rest of her body had been mutilated because it wasn't found. But the problem Mm. is, other than living in the same county as the crime, there aren't additional details to link Charlie Brandt to that murder. We know the crime he committed in 1979 or 71, and we know the crime he committed in 2004. And now we have other cases dating in the middle from at least 1989 and 1995. So how many more could there be, especially given how much he traveled? There were no fewer than 26 unsolved murder cases just in Florida in the time Charlie Brandt was a resident that shared some similarity to his MO. So how many more people had trusted him? Lead investigator Hemmert hit on that, saying, quote, that's the sad part about this. These people were completely misled. They knew Charlie Brandt to be this guy that they could rely on. That was the friend who was there when they needed him. We knew Charlie. They knew the work, Charlie. They knew the go out on the boat fishing, Charlie. They didn't know the true Charlie. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Early. We do. End quote. Hmm. Michelle's mother, Mary Lou, agreed, quote, I believe he had a covert evil nature, and I believe he was able to control it and cover it. He was an invisible criminal walking around, 
end quote. And if that statement doesn't put fear in us all, I don't know what will. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next week. I know this is where you generally expect to hear love notes, but Maggie and I are saving those for next week so we can record them together. In the meantime, if you haven't yet, please don't forget to head on over to the podcast awards that are linked in our show notes and pretty please vote for Coffee and Cases for People's Choice and most importantly, for Best Female Hosted Podcast. We were so excited when we found out that we were nominated again this year, and it would mean the world to us if you voted for us. Until next week, Sleuth Hounds. Um.